0: Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year, Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Dominic Green is a writer, historian, and editor whose books include Three Empires on the Nile and The Double Life of Dr. Lopez. His new book is a large historical study entitled The Religious Revolution, The Birth of Modern Spirituality, 1848 to 1898. That is our topic today. Welcome, Dr. Green.
1: Uh, Mark, thank you so much. It's a great pleasure uh, to be talking to you and also um, indirectly to to your readers, who I know are an erudite and well-read bunch.
0: They're the best. They're just the best. Uh, So and it's it's nice that that we've got a nice audience for focused on books. Uh, uh, Let's keep going. So uh, a big question to start. uh, What makes spirituality modern? Now, I, I know that's a huge, huge question, but if you can if you can condense that for us, what... What does that modern modifier in your title mean?
1: Well, I mean it uh, to describe the, the way of feeling that typifies uh, not just the modern West, but uh, increasingly the world as a whole. And if we uh, look back at, say, uh, the Protestant uh, Reformation, where the the roots of this lie, you'll find the word spiritual being used uh, to mean soulful, a sense of uh, inner uh, religious sentiment. Uh, Gradually, it expands beyond the bounds of Christianity and comes to mean uh, what we would now call identity politics, in effect, the sense that you have a very personal inner world and that it is almost self-sufficient to itself. Uh, One of the uh, striking things when you look at the modern era, and and I picked the date of 1848, because that's a great political watershed as much as anything else, um, is when you look at the world's major faiths, um, all of them uh, developed a kind of religious politics that bridged uh, the old and the new. Uh, In Hinduism, you have Hindutva which is the politics of being a Hindu. In in Islam, you have Islamism. In Judaism, you develop Zionism. The only religion which doesn't do this is Christianity. And the reason is, of course, that Christianity, or rather it does do it, but it takes the form of socialism and science. These are the two great innovations that uh, come out of Western Europe in the early modern period and come to define, really, what makes us modern. So that's one reason why I picked 1848 as my start date, uh, rather than, say, in the 1830s when Emerson turned away uh, from the church and set his own course, uh, rather than, say, um, 18, I believe, 1807 when William Blake uh, coined the phrase the New Age. Um, Again, and that was in the context of a political revolution in terms of after the French Revolution. And all of these things are undoubtedly political. Uh, We live in a liberal political system, which uh, tells us we are to separate uh, religion and politics, that there is a a private sphere and a public one. And of course, our brains don't work like that. And for most of human history, our societies haven't worked like that. And indeed, in most of the world, they still don't. So there's a very uh, peculiar and particular way of doing religion, art and politics a way of living, a way of being a person, of selfhood, as we have come to call, to call it, to use another of those modern Western coinages. There's a very particular way of doing it. And in the late 19th century, which was a great age of globalization, tele, a, a communications revolution in particular, rather like the one that we have seen uh, in recent decades. In, in the late 19th century, this model of um, customized highly personal, a little cosmos to yourself, which has previously been the preserve of a few oddballs and and maniacs. um, Becomes almost a product that you can buy it literally off the shelf. You can buy books telling you how to be that kind of person. And in the late 19th century, you know, in Germany, it's called Lebensreform, life reform. In the English speaking world, it comes to be called the New Age. And there's actually a journal called that in the late 19th, 30th, 20th century, which is a mixture of, of vegetarianism, Wagnerism, uh, and uh, socialism, and often anti imperial politics. Anti imperial politics are also produced out of this mix. So To understand where we are now, my my feeling is we look to them uh, because that's at the moment at which this stuff became a potent force both in religious life but also in political life. And any modern history of the West always has to explain the origins of fascism. Uh, And Hannah Arendt famously uh, looked for them in South Africa, which seemed to me a very long way to go and not much... uh, elucidation to get when you arrive. I I would say it occurs in the heart of the system of the modern West, that um, this mixing of science and socialism, and racial science in particular, which uh, under the shadow of evolutionary theory is is also the great transforming idea of the late 19th century, that really explains that too. So to understand the world we are now in, uh, I believe we have to look at that particular period.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You you have a nice phrase there when, in spite of the fact that we often hear the 19th century is the age in which faith recedes, uh, quote, reports of the death of the Almighty were greatly exaggerated. Uh, That's good. That's good. (laughs) Let's go back to, you mentioned Emerson. You begin with his trip to Paris in 1848. What's the significance of that trip? What happened there?
1: Well, firstly, the French have yet another revolution, uh, but on his way to Paris, Emerson uh, meets Carlyle, who is the great pessimist. Uh, you know, the Victorian pessimist, who rather sees in the in the, on the long horizon a, a a revival, a renaissance of of Western culture. Um, possibly a, a future after Christianity, with Christianity displaced from, it, from its commanding position, not just in, in the politics of, of the West, but also in the inner lives, in the social life of people. So in Paris, Emerson sees mobs of people with torches, and he's repulsed by this. He, he is the great individualist, he believes, um, not in so much the perfection of the individual, which is something that you know the French Revolution spoke of, um, but in in the in the extension in the development of human capacities and having the kind of society that would foster individualism. And of course, there's this great fear in this period uh, of democracy as as something that will crush out exceptional talents. You know, the the John Stuart Mill calls it the tyranny of the majority. And so, in Paris, Emerson sees that tyranny. You see, and the alternative he says is laissez-faire the only way in other words keep the government out of people's lives and let talent thrive let people stand or fall on their own ability uh, and that therefore is a very different vision from the one with or the path really which europe is setting itself on um, and it's also a very uh, interesting trip because carlisle takes him on a day trip to stonehenge now I don't know about you, but I, I actually found Stonehenge an amazing thing to see. If you go early in the morning, there's nobody there, and it's it, it's it's um, it, it's quite unreal in a way. You're looking at some ancient world, and you have no idea what the people who built it thought or did or believed or what they did there. Most of this stuff is invented out of H.P. Lovecraft novels and Asterix comics. No one knows anything about it. But when Emerson and Carlyle go there, uh, they each have two different reactions. The the Carlyle's notebook. Uh, It describes basically, you know, these are the ruins of a defunct civilization, and all is awful, and it's windswept, and even the sheep look stupid to him. (laughs) And and when they get back to their pub, there's no milk for the tea, and and the railway has taken away all the traffic. So this monstrous machinery has just crushed out any hope of connecting to the past. Emerson, meanwhile, is standing there looking at these giant stones and and thinking, well, I, I saw some Irish laborers in the back bay of Boston using a rope and a a winch to move, you know, these huge rocks. And so this is how they did it. And there there is a kind of eternal, pragmatic, practical ambition uh, in people that doesn't die out, and in fact reformulates itself. And as he's standing there by these fallen stones, he says, well, you know, maybe the next great wave of this impulse to, you know, the pyramid building impulse, as it were, Uh, Maybe the next great wave of this will come from the Orient, from the East. And of course, this isn't a thought that uh, falls, you know, on his head from nowhere. This is a thought which has been bubbling in uh, German Romantic thinking since the 1790s. Um, And it's a mixture of uh, imperial management. You know, the British and the French have these colonies in, in India in particular. And in order to understand people, in order to control them and run their societies, they have to do philology, they have to study languages and histories and laws and religious texts. And the result is that Emerson's aunt, who, who is one of those uh, spiritually minded uh, New England types, Emerson's aunt gives him copies of these books, which are printed in London, but under the auspices of the uh, East India Company, the people who has gone into the harbor in in Boston, the same East India company is disseminating these books, translating the laws of Manu and the Bhagavad Gita for the first time into English. And so uh, at the same time as these people are being conquered, their their culture, their religious thinking is being exported as well. And it washes all the way across the Atlantic. And of course, and to Thoreau, who by Walden Pond is imagining how these chunks of ice on the pond will float all the way back carrying some kind of dynamic modern you know practical essence to the sleeping east now all of this is cliches of course The, the you know the sleeping east or what marx called asiatic despotism versus the dynamic west and you know at the pragmatic emerson but this is the, the, uh, the story of the times, in a, in a sense. And, and it's a technological story, as much as anything. It's very easy to be dynamic if you have the latest equipment. And in this case, you know, the Westerners do.
0: Now, you mentioned the, you know, letting talent thrive, you know, the laissez-faire response. But one of the key terms in your history is, is development. You, you, you said that word uh, a few minutes ago, that there is a sense of human development. Human beings are developing, and, and the 1848 revolutions actually figure in to this. What is this new developmental sense of, of human beings?
1: Well, I, I'd say twofold, and we, um, we have to look at it almost simultaneously, which is very difficult. One of them is a political sense um, in that by organizing uh, industry and commerce, in effect, we can achieve a perfect society, and that is, of course, the socialist ideal of, uh, you know, each his own and so on, according to capacity and needs. Um, At the same time, development theory is what, for most of the 19th century, they would call what we call evolution. They call it development theory. And this has been bubbling along all through the 18th century. You know, Darwin's grandfather was one of the people, Erasmus Darwin. How's that for a a Protestant name? Erasmus Darwin was one of the people who, who, um, you know, sketched out uh, an evolutionary theory in a poem, in fact, in the late 18th century. So development theory is bubbling along all through the 1830s and 1840s and Darwin is one of a number of scientists uh, not exclusively british but but generally who who are working on this and Darwin has uh, seen something or rather Darwin has seen nothing Darwin has seen that or rather he believes that evolution has no moral purpose no no logic other than fitting the animal for its evolutionary niche, as as we would say now. And that is one of the reasons why he doesn't publish his theory for quite a while, because he's aware that it's effectively setting loose in society, a doctrine of might is right, um, which has nihilistic implications for any sense of purpose or value in human existence. And at one point uh, Charles Lyell who's uh, the geologist and canal builder uh, who in the 1830s publishes one of the forerunner theories. Charles Ly- Lyell writes to Darwin after publication of on the origin of species in 1859 and says, "Can you give me a quote consolation, a Christian consolation about where all this evolution is heading?" And and Darwin says, "Consolation I can give you none." You yeah. know, and um, um, and at the same time, he says to his publisher, "I'm not going to talk about the big things." But privately, in his correspondence, you can see that he realized he's lit a fuse in a sense, and of course, it does blow up. So when, when a decade later, in the later 1860s, 1870s, Nietzsche famously says, "You know, God is dead." He means that the Christian God has been overthrown by a different kind of doctrine, not a doctrine of compassion or love or anything beyond struggle and violence and uh, evolutionary fitness. And this, of course, fuses, this race science fuses into the political goal of of socialism. And the result is what you would call fascism, national socialism, the the racial collectivism of the 20th century.
0: Resist junk food journalism. That is the clarion call of the First Things 2022 year-end campaign. We're against shrill moralizing, overwrought clickbait, and limp prose. Such writing might taste good in the moment, but ultimately it fails to satisfy. Instead, we invite you to a sumptuous intellectual and spiritual and moral feast. Essays, reviews, and poems written by the leading lights of religious thought, complemented by other media such as the podcast you are listening to now. This is a better way. Join us to strengthen the vital, nourishing work of first things by making your tax-deductible gift to the 2022 year-end campaign today at firstthings.com backslash campaign. Thank you. You have another strand here, names that aren't as well-known as Darwin and Nietzsche that lend a, a lot of vivid, dramatic interest to the book. Let me ask you, who was a particular character? I hope I pronounce his name correctly. Who was Eliphas Levi Zahed? And what was his quote? Occult science.
1: Well, for starters, he was Alphonse Constant, who was a, a defrocked priest who became <laughs> a radical in 1848, uh, and also uh, wrote poetry. And and one of the strange things I came across was that um, his his poetry, uh, in some ways, anticipates that of Baudelaire, who is who is the great you know radical figure of France in this period. Well, Eliphaz Levy, uh, to give me his French pronunciation, he got there first, and. Eliphaz Levy, in effect, was um, the end of a very long tradition, um, which you could say starts to cohere in the Renaissance, the Neo-Platonist occult revival, the the search for the origins of Christianity, which these days is is respectably dressed up as in the academy, as as, uh, philology, comparative religion, comparative linguistics, all of these things. Um, At the time, exists as a sort of speculative uh, religious history uh, with implications as they're saying of revolt and empowerment and so on and the word empowerment which is one of those awful words people keep using these days i feel empowered this is one of those words that comes into focus then as well because the doctrine of nietzsche is nothing but power of course and the will to it uh, and this doctrine Begins, really, in in the form of Eliphas Levy, who is an absurd figure, a kind of huckster figure, really, a professional occultist who um, ekes out a living by sending what he calls magnetized photographs to cure, you know, cows which are not producing milk. You know, he sends them down to the country. An absurd figure who um, is nevertheless, I believe, crystallizing uh, this kind of thought. He's a big influence, incidentally, on Cosima Wagner. Hmm. Um, So... Um, one of the things that I most, that most interested me was when you trace the origins of these ideas, for instance, the New Age, or empowerment, or identity politics, or the environment, which is a coinage, again, of this period, you often find out that, that weirdos and impostors are the I ones who, who have come up with these things, and some time passes before their ideas can be repurposed and put often to a quite different use. So LFS Levy is is completely obscure from his death in the 1870s until the late 1960s when there's a huge uh, delayed action in effect. Uh, the new age breaks out in the United States in the late 60s. They call it the age of Aquarius. Uh, Eliphas Levy's books are reprinted in English uh, for, the, for the first time since the 1920s. Uh, and his whole iconography of, of kind of satanic goats and pentangles and so on becomes the iconography of, of heavy metal which is, you know, light entertainment, really, uh, for teenagers. Um, So to me, he's actually a very significant uh, figure who's been uh, perhaps justly ignored because there's something ridiculous. But intellectual history is is often absurd in this way, that, uh, you know, nobody knew that William Blake in the early 1800s would be seen as the quintessential uh, artist of his time which now we look back and he he actually is an astonishing figure at the very core of things. And the same goes for Eliphaz Levy, who's only mildly less nutty, um, who actually emerges. I I nominate him as the the unacknowledged uh, legislator of this Hmm. great... uh, uh, The development of empowerment, for instance, is something that it wasn't around before, and after him it is.
0: Speaking of, of poets, unacknowledged legislators... You you turn to Walt Whitman. Okay, we got the famous uh, uh, American poet here. You turn to "Song of Myself," and there you say that he actually introduces a quote new spiritual type. Uh, What what are the characteristics of this new spiritual individual type?
1: Well I think this will be familiar to anybody who spent a lot of time online in a way which is um, which is the the barrier between what is yours and not yours between what is clean and dirty between you know pure impure this is the fundamental division at the heart of society and the and the categories of religion and Walt Whitman is perhaps the first person to say I mean there have been lots of geniuses before who said I'm a genius and everything else is trash Walt Whitman says I'm a genius, and, and, and uh, that spirit, that genius, contains all, good, bad, up, down, left, right, whatever it is. I, can, I contain multitudes, as he said. And, and um, of course, he believes that fundamentally this, this is a healthy process rather than representing uh, the, the breakdown of, of, of his uh, core self in a way. Uh, it's very easy to be a visionary. It's another thing uh, to, to make a living, which is something else Whitman often struggled with. Though he was a splendid publicist,
0: um, <laughs> Indeed. Well, he he says, and you you quote him on this that in the near future, quote, there will be no more priests. Is this we're all going to be priests, or is this there'll be no more organized religion? I, what, what 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 specifically would he mean by that?
1: Well, what Whitman means is every man becomes his own priest. You are in effect a religion to yourself, a song of yourself, as he would have said. Um, Carlyle, a few years earlier, you know, has written his French Revolution book, and, and he says, lower than that, savage man cannot go, in the sense of, of, of what he, he said the French Revolution was the third of the Protestant revolutions, after Luther, after Cromwell, the French Revolution, in other words, had secularized this impulse, uh, this small p, Protestant impulse, uh, towards ever greater individuality. Or as Tocqueville had warned, when he, in the same decade, in the eighteen thirties, was in America, ever great atomization being the risk, uh, and and that is what Whitman is saying. He's saying it's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to be absolute individuals, and the world will bend its arc towards us because you know we are putting our backs to the our shoulders to the wheel.
0: The, the so the developmentalist thinking is it always a a, a positive development? Uh, in, in the line, in the lines you're you're speaking, there isn't any sense of a of a of a devolution that these people offer.
1: Um, there is of course, yes, there is. There are those who are seeing the downside. Um, um, lots of these things are extremely positive. We're talking about equal, genuine equality under the law between men, women, whites, blacks, so on. That the, the great leveling that occurred in the 20th century uh, in the liberal societies, which was also the era in which the gap between the rich and the poor closed to a greater extent than at any point in human history, and also saw a greater degree of a basic comfort for people as well. These are all, I think, absolutely part of it. There's a powerful counter impulse, which is often uh, the intellectuals, who, of course, should be trusted with no machinery heavier than a lawnmower. Um, the intellectuals, of course, want to keep their hands on the machinery of politics. Um, and they, of course, are talking about Uh, decadence, first in racial terms and Gobineau, but also in cultural terms. And this long line of of German pessimists, which, which reaches a kind of epic peak with Spengler, who, by the way, had written *Decline of the West before the First World War. Uh, rather like T.S. Eliot, Spengler was, was, was a pessimist in waiting for things to get really bad in order to be vindicated. Um, so there's a very powerful uh, negative view of this, which is basically uh, democracy is going to uh, make the idiots as important as us smart guys, and we're going to lose control of things. The, the, the idiots will have more children uh, than the smart people, and it's the end.
0: You mentioned Cosima Wagner and Wagner himself uh, as as a, a fan or a fanatic of Wagner. Uh, I, I loved your discussion there of sort of the Wagner the Wagner cult and and, and his music as well. You talk about Tristan and Isolde, the, the the Liebestod, right, the the love death. There, what kind of spirituality did Wagner represent, or?
1: Well, it's very complicated firstly because he has fantastic tunes let 's face it uh, he's, he's a wonderful melodist and technician, um, the spirituality that Wagner talks about one of the things he begins uh, as a radical of eighteen forty eight the first time he talks about um, burning down the theater is, is in regard to a very practical matter of setting fire to the to a theater where he was living in Dresden at the time um, wagner 's spirituality it, uh, is I think it, he's the great synthesis in a way. If you want, if we're talking as, as we are in this period about a, a synthesis of uh, spirituality and religion, spirituality and politics, in race science, and also in art, which emerges, of course, in the 19th century as the supreme alternative to religion with music as the greatest of all. All of these things converge in Wagner. And of course, they also converge with the great dilemma of German politics. Here you have The people at the heart of Europe who don't have a state uh, and are going to have to elbow their way uh, into parity, say with France or Russia or Britain, uh, who are also going to produce um, the scientific edge, which is going to render Germany a technical challenge to the entire world by the end of the 19th century. And when Wagner isn't writing his banging tunes, he is theorizing at length. Wagner's essays, I mean there are volumes and volumes of these things before you even look at the letters, the essays are a completely worked out theory. I mean, you know, we know that the Gesamtkunstwerk, work, a total work of art, uh, the combining um, of, of absolutism, of perfection in religion, politics, art at the same time, of course, dissolves the boundaries that keep the public, the private, the legal, the illegal, apart in uh, a liberal society. Wagner is an absolute uh, revolutionary in this sense, and most of what he has in mind is quite wicked. It is the destruction of, of the uh, liberal individual. And I mean that in the 18th century sense rather than, in, you know, the 21st. Um, he, he, he wants a war to the end uh, with social morality, in effect.
0: Hmm. To, to go to uh, a lesser known figure, uh, define for us what theosophy is and who was Madame Blavatsky?
1: Well, Theosophy was, was meant to be the greatest hits of all world religions. Um, by, by the 1860s, uh, all this stuff was available on the shelf, and, and it was possible for an imposter. A, a, a spiritualist medium, really. Uh, Madame Levatsky, a Russian aristocrat who had floated around in rather rackety uh, circumstances. Through uh, At one point, she was in Constantinople working in a circus. Another time, she was in uh, Alexandria, which was a sort of stopping off point for all of the European commerce that was on its way uh, east. Um, and then she ended up in the US um, in the late 1850s um, and was at one point involved in a Fourierist commune and effectively crystallized all of this stuff, combined Darwin with the the comparative religion, fascination with the East, with this doctrine of personal empowerment that LFS Livy had created, and called it the New Age, the secret doctrine. How she could have called it a secret doctrine, I don't know, because it was mass publication that people were buying in huge quantities, and she was running a newspaper (laughs) with, with all the secrets in it. So on one hand, yes, it's an absolute scam, it is. She is basically the grandmother of L. Ron Hubbard and so on. On the other hand, the fact is people do actually tend to believe anything, or rather they believe what they need to believe often, and left to their own devices, they, they will buy into this stuff. So she is the P.T. Barnum of the spirit, and, and in a way has, has had um, greater endurance than Mary a. Baker Eddy, who was the more respectable uh, version of the same thing. Who, who thought you know you could blend Christianity with self help and healing and call it science? Um, Blavatsky is everywhere, and and we don't see her because of course she she was a forerunner. But any time you do yoga because you have a bad back rather than because you want enlightenment, um, any time you hear someone and and I'm, I hear it often, people say, "Oh, I burnt some white sage in order to purify my new apartment." Any time, anything like that, any any folly like that. It is Madame Blavatsky who was the great uh, conduit for this stuff and Mm -hmm. and a spectacular imposter. I mean, you couldn't make her up. She's a figure from a Dostoevsky novel.
0: This is the time when the figure of the medium appears. What does a medium do?
1: Well, a medium is literally in the middle because people uh, have intuitions about the meaning of life, the world beyond, about something beyond the material. And let's face it, the 19th century, rather like our time, prefers a very limited materialist view of the world because you can get stuff done. You can send telegrams and take trains and planes and so on with a material view of things. The medium literally offers themselves as the bridge uh, between the known material world and everything else. What What previously had the certainties of organized religion in in effect. Uh, And and spiritualism takes off, funnily enough, in the year of 1848. The year of the political revolutions in France is also the year uh, that spiritualism uh, calls itself a new religion in the U.S. And it is, I think, the first non-Christian sectarian development to be declared in, in, you know, 1,500 years or more. And, And that's also happened in 1848.
0: Hmm. Uh, l- last question: Nietzsche is a big figure, uh, as you, you've said, and several of the, the, the later chapters cover Nietzsche. And you you call Nietzsche quote uh, you say a visionary who saw the dawning rays of the new age. Uh, what, would, what what was his what would be his positive version of the new age be?
1: Well, it would be the better parts of the doctrine of empowerment. He took an extremely dim view of democracy after a long and, and conscientious involvement in the theories of, of racial science, and in particular, Wagnerite, anti-Semitism. He sort of threw all that aside and, and ended up as a sort of a pagan revivalist, um, concentrating on what we would call lifestyle now. Um, there's an enormous amount, of, I think, of uh, value in what he wrote simply as an analyst, Of of the ups and downsides of of this way of living, which we are all surrounded by, Uh, in particular the idea that you could um, of of self overcoming of struggle. These are very positive applications, I think, and in a way, when you know, they look to me like they almost promise to come full circle back to um, not just Greek ideas, which he's obviously uh, drawing on. Of, of, of self-development, but also the traditional Christian ideas of, of of improving yourself by by conscientious examination and effort. These these are not themselves radical. What he predicts, and of course you only have to to take a walk as as I did yesterday through Manhattan, and you'll see it. Is you have to go for a period of nihilism, of collapse, in other words, before. Uh, you can get there. And he predicted uh, pretty much uh, that we would be going through that. And he, he called it uh, Western Buddhism, a kind of nihilism and passivity, um, where people were incapable of looking beyond the here and now and their own self-gratification. So there's a sort of um, self-lacerating, undercutting, constant undercutting uh, going on, when because he, he has hints, as you can see, of this 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 there's a potential for an improvement, as it were, in how people live and how they understand themselves. But there's also this destruction going on of of the, the very idea of the modern individual.
0: The book is The Religious Revolution, The Birth of Modern Spirituality, 1848 to 1898. Dominic Green, thank you for joining us. Mark, thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you.